0: Many things church will teach us about God. Many of God's attributes will be taught about and thought about. But one thing, in my opinion, that we rarely focus on, is the fact that God is strategic. We talk about him being omnipresent, omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing, but we rarely talk about the fact that his movements, his ways, how he does things in your life is from a very strategic place. And it's comforting to know that God is strategic because sometimes what he promised he would do and what he's doing now seem to be going in different directions. If all of God's ways and his uh, movements in our lives were perfectly congruent with his promise, we would have no need to seek him or we would have no need to study him. We would have no need for faith Because his will would be readily apparent and obvious. I don't need faith when my life is going exactly according to the promises of God. He said it and I see it and I'm good. I don't need faith. I need faith when God promised me this and everything in my life looks totally opposite than the thing he said he would do. The scripture says in Romans 11:33 the apostle Paul said God's ways are impossible to trace. In Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, he told the prophet, my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. In other words, you would never be able to figure out what I'm going to do at the end of this thing because your mind could never reach that high. And it's comforting to know that because sometimes God's actions seem To contradict his promises. Sometimes it looks like he's not going to work out for you what he promised he would work out for you. And if you don't know deep down that he is strategic, you will misread his movements in your life. Many in this room have let frustration choke your hope. Because God promised you something good. And you're dealing with something bad. But the strategic God is the only one who can take something that is bad. And by the end of it, making that bad thing work for your good. Only the strategic God can take you down. And yet raise you up at the same time through the same set of circumstances God promised Joseph that he would be elevated above his brothers and his father and he got that promise in a prophetic dream from God it was God's promise it was God's seal to him and then God allowed him to get thrown into a pit and the pit I'm in don't look like the promise you showed me then God allowed him to get sold as a slave into Potiphar's house where his wife lied on him and eventually he was thrown in prison and if the pit didn't look like what you promised me the prison certainly doesn't look like what you promised me you said I would be elevated above and now I'm in an underground prison But God took him through the pit, Potiphar's house, and the prison. So he would be positioned one step away from the seat of power in the palace. God has a way of strategically using the negative things and the hurtful things and the painful things of your life and even the contradictions in your life. He'll use it to position you in the place he promised you would end up. So the first thing I want to tell those of you who made the decision to come to church this Sunday morning the first thing I want to tell you is however bad it is right now in your life you are somewhere within the strategy of God your circumstance is somewhere God hadn't turned you over to the enemy God hadn't turned you over to people you are somewhere within the strategy of God you may be in a pit you may be in an awful place you may be in a place of depression you may be in a place of financial difficulty. You may be in a place of struggle in your health or your mental health, but you are somewhere right where you are. You are somewhere within the strategy of God. And before this thing is over, God's going to make the bad thing go to work on your promise, go to work on your good, go to work for your benefit. But we live in the meantime in this tension of contradiction. God said one thing. I'm seeing the opposite and the disciples dealt with this. If you think about what the disciples went through, it's terrible because when they got introduced to Jesus, Jesus was talking about a kingdom. He was talking about restoring Israel. Jesus was walking around performing miracles, proving he had divine power making an open display, casting out demons, blessing people, healing people, raising people up. And the disciples are shouting because he's doing all these things and he's preaching about a kingdom. Kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. They were arguing over who was going to get to sit on the right hand or the left hand in the kingdom. They were excited about the kingdom when all of a sudden he changed his message and he started talking about a cross. Wait a second now. I signed up for a kingdom. What you doing talking about this cross and every real believer who's ever really walked with God a little while knows what this is like at some level because we signed up for a kingdom. You're going to forgive my sins, separate me from the degradation of my past. You're going to fill me with the Holy Spirit of God. Give me spiritual gifts. You're going to use me and bless me and do things in my, hallelujah. Let thy kingdom come. But at some point, every believer will have to embrace a cross Everybody's got their own cross to bear. And it seems like a contradiction, the, the cross and the kingdom. I, I, I got excited. I got excited about the blessing. Nobody told me that in between blessings, there would be battles, burdens, bruises. I got excited about the mountains. Nobody told me in between the mountains, there'd be valleys. I got excited about the healing. Nobody told me in between healing, there'd be sickness. So the real challenge of believers is following God, not when things are going right, according to plan. The real challenge for believers is following God through places of contradiction, confusion, and doubt. Because even when the kingdom looks like it's turned into a cross, you have to remember God has a strategy. Psalm 27, 13 and 14, David wrestled with these contradictions. He said, I almost fainted or almost died. Had I not believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord. In the land of the living or while I'm still alive. In other words, David said it's so bad in my life right now I could just die. You ever had it that bad in your life where you could just lay down and die? He said it's so bad I could just die and I would die if I didn't believe, in other words, that God has a strategy. That God would not have brought me this far in my life just to let my circumstances or my enemies kill me. That God would not have brought me through so many good things that he lets this one bad thing destroy me. He said, so in my pain, I am still going to believe that I will see the goodness of the Lord. With tears streaming down my face, with
1: my insomnia and depression with my anxiety with my disease I still am convinced that this is somewhere in the strategy of God that I'm on God's mind and God has a plan for my life and I don't like what I'm going through now but I'm gonna keep going through because I believe I will see the goodness of the Lord I came to tell you the second thing you're going to see the goodness you may be hurting right now but you're going to see the goodness you may be crying right now, but you are going to see.
0: Walk with me as we trod upon hallowed ground now. In our text, Jesus has been abandoned by his disciples with The closest one Peter not just abandoning him the closest one that he invested the most into passionately swearing and denying that he ever even knew who Jesus was Jesus has been arrested and first taken to the judgment hall we don't preach enough about what he went through in the judgment hall the whole passion of the of the Christ was a mixture of pain and embarrassment. Pain and humiliation. We talk a lot about the whip and the nails and the cross. We don't talk as much about the humiliation. In the judgment hall is when they started humiliating him. They blindfolded him and they took a stick and they said, You're really such a prophet. Tell us which. One of us hit you, and they took turns doing it. Then they begin to take turns spitting on him. I don't know if you've ever had anybody spit on you, but it's one of the most degrading feelings. And they, they took turns doing it. They started to escalate and get a little more violent, they started to strike him with their fists. And then finally, they ripped the beard out of his face. Then they take him to the whipping post, binding his hands above his head, stretching out and elongating his back muscles and with a cat o' nine tail whip, a whip sewn with leather straps, which were tied with and mingled with bone, glass, and shards of metal. They beat him and scourged him to the point that the historian Josephus said, there were such holes in his body from the whip that his internal organs were peeking out through the holes they made in his body. Then they put a cross on his back and they made him carry it up a hill called Calvary. And then in verse 23, John 19, 23, right before they drove the nails in his hands and feet, it's just this little thing. People don't pay a whole lot of attention to it that the Holy Spirit told me to highlight for somebody. I wish I knew who you were, but the Bible says in John 19, 23, when they crucified Jesus first, they, they took his clothes and they divided his clothes up. They tore them apart into four shares, one for each of them with the undergarment, his, his underwear remaining. In verse 24, they said, Let's not tear that apart like we did his other clothes. That's there's no seams in it. It was woven from top to bottom. That's valuable. Let's roll dice for it. And to do that, they had to strip him naked. They've got his clothes. They've got his underwear. And what I wanted you to see, he's not just in pain physically. Now he's massively embarrassed, full of shame. And you need to know that because he endured that level of public humiliation and shame. He was stripped of all of his clothes. So that you could be covered and released from your shame. The Holy Spirit told me there's far too many people in this room walking around with shame. Shame because of what you did in the past. Shame because of what happened in your youth. Shame because of this. Shame because of your mistake. Shame. And you can't, you, you've gotten past the incident, but you're still carrying with you the shame of it. And it's because you don't know that Jesus took on not just sin, not just curses. Jesus took on the shame of our sin and he let them, he let them. Take his clothes so that you could take up a garment, a covering, something to to wrap around you that will cause you to be able to raise your head. Stop walking with your head down because of shame. It's disrespectful to what Jesus went through for you to be a blood bought believer walking around in shame. Don't let people shame you. Don't let the devil shame you. And for God's sake stop shaming yourself. Jesus went through entirely too much. And then as he's nailed to the cross and hanging there stripped of his Dignity nears death. And he has one final request of the world. Before he dies. He asks mankind. For one last thing. Verse 28 later knowing everything and now been finished. So the scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus said I. Am. Thirsty. And we got We've got a theological conundrum with this. Maybe you can see it in the text if you're real sharp. I am thirsty. should spark off a few theological ideas in your mind for Jesus to say, I am thirsty. You will remember, of course, Theologically speaking, that Jesus is God. John chapter one, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. The same was with God in the beginning. All things were made by him. Him who? The word. And without him was not anything made that was made. Verse 14 of John chapter 1. That word in the beginning was made flesh and dwelt among us in the form of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. Fully man, yes. But also fully God. But there was this one thing he used to do when he wanted to refer to his divinity, when he wanted to step aside from the humanity and refer to his divinity, he would always say this statement. He would say, I am. For instance, he was in an argument with the Pharisees and they were saying, we, we don't have to listen to your teaching. We respect the teaching of Abraham. Jesus said, Abraham delighted to see my day. They said, you're not even 40 years old. You're telling us you saw Abraham. Jesus steps out of his humanity and says, before Abraham was, I am. They tried to stone him. Jesus, when he wanted to make a clear distinction between his humanity and his divinity, he would always say, I am. He said things like, When he's standing in the graveyard talking to Martha, he's standing there weeping in his humanity, comforting them. And then he says, he's going to live again. And she said, I know, I know. At the last day, at the last resurrection, when all the world is over, everyone's going to rise. And then he steps into his divinity and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live he said things like I am the way the truth and the life no man comes to the father but by me he said things like I am the door of the sheepfold. anyone trying to enter the kingdom any other way is the same as a thief and a robber and a thief comes not but to kill steal and destroy but I am come that you might have life and that more abundantly he said things like I am the good Shepherd So whenever Jesus is saying, I am, he's, he's fleeing his humanity for a moment and concentrating your mind on his divinity. So he says here, I am thirsty. From the human part of Jesus, we could assume his throat was parched and needed a drink of water. But he never said, I am, referring to himself as a human. He only said, I am, referring to himself as God Almighty. And if you look at it from that perspective, it's a pretty interesting statement for Jesus to say. I am thirsty. It's interesting that a God who created a planet that's three-fourths water would say, I am thirsty. It's interesting that a God who created our human bodies that are comprised of over 60% of water would say, I am thirsty. Pastor John, I got to think about it. Most of God's famous miracles in the scripture have something to do with water. You remember for the Israelites, he, he parted the the Red Sea. You remember when they came to Mirabah, there were water there, but they couldn't drink it because it was bitter. And so God told Moses to throw a tree in the bitter waters of Mirabah, and God made the waters sweet. When they got to an arid place where there was no brook or stream, God told Moses, take out your rod and strike the rock. And God made water come out of a rock. You remember Jesus' first miracle, don't you? Shows up on the scene. Doesn't heal anybody. Doesn't raise anybody from the dead. Doesn't cast out a demon. First thing he did was he he turned. Fourth watch of the night during a storm with the disciples separated from him. All of a sudden, Jesus comes to them. Walking on the water. Strange to see a God who's so experienced with water and miracles with water. If he could make water come out of a rock, he could have made water come out of the top of the cross to get a drink. He says, I am thirsty. Instead of giving him water, they soaked a sponge with sour wine. And lifted it up to him. Doing what mankind has always done. Failing to give God. What he asked for. That was the sin of Cain in Genesis. He did give God something. But he didn't give him. What he asked for. And perhaps they weren't doing it to be cruel. Perhaps they were ignorant. Perhaps they didn't really understand what he was thirsty for. Maybe it'll help us understand if we know that he said this same statement one time before. In John chapter four, if you'll go there, we find Jesus sitting on a well. He's waiting all day on a woman to come to the well. This in itself is amazing because when the woman arrives, we find out she's not even a good woman. The young folks would say she's a thought Forgive me for the language, but she was promiscuous, nasty, morally bankrupt. Dirty, and yet Jesus is
1: sitting there waiting for her
0: all day, waiting for a thought. Should have titled this message, Waiting. When she arrives, Jesus, he asks her the same question he asks in John 19 on the cross. He said, I am thirsty. Will you give me something to drink? She replies, sir, you have nothing to draw with. Because she thinks he's talking about H2O. So the same problem we have in John 19, we have in John 4 Jesus is asking for something and because his ways are higher than our ways and thoughts higher than our thoughts neither person in neither text understood what he meant by I am thirsty in John 4 chapter 10 Jesus answered her if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And as the conversation evolves, they go from talking about water to talking about worship. In John 4, 23, Jesus said, yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the father sees." The father seeks that God is looking for something. Now, when I look for something, I look for it because I can't find it. But how can a God who knows everything and has everything, how can he seek something? And all of a sudden we realize that he's seeking, longing for, thirsty for the one thing he can't give himself. He's thirsty for her worship. text is amazing. He says, give me a drink. She says, you don't have anything to draw with. And he said, well, if you knew who you were talking to, you would have asked me to give you a drink so that you could give me a drink. (laughs) I want to put something down on the inside of your spirit so that you can give me what I'm thirsty for. I created you, I made your voice, I made your hands, I hold your heart and I want to put something in you that when you open up your mouth, not only does it water you, but it quenches me. I'm thirsty for what I deposited down on the inside of your Spirit. Really what I'm thirsty for is I'm thirsty for you. I want to hear the sound of you with your background and all of your mistakes and all of your past and all of your problems I want to know what it would feel like to drink in your worship once I've restored you, blessed you, cleaned you up, brought you all the way up from a low place. I wonder what it would sound like. I wonder how the
1: praise would feel to my throat. I wonder what a quench I would get deep inside to hear you thank me for all of the things I've brought you through after I brought you through them. I wonder how it would feel to hear you say thank you for my healing after I heal your body. So if you knew who you were talking to, you would ask me to do something in you so that you could provide something then for me because I'm thirsty.
0: tell three people, say, God is thirsty. God is thirsty. God is thirsty. Spread the rumor. No, tell them three of them. "God God is thirsty. God is thirsty. God is thirsty. With that information, I see it now. With that information, we can go back to the cross where he's bleeding and dying and suffering and embarrassed and in pain,
1: and he's doing it
0: for us, for the sins of the world. And in his last moment before giving up the ghost, he was thirsty, not for sour wine or for water. He was thirsty for somebody to look up at what he was doing and realize the depth of the love and the sacrifice. Realize what he was taking off of us. Realize what he was redeeming us from. Realize what he was taking on our behalf. He wanted somebody to lift up their hands and look upon him and say, Lord, I thank you. Lord, I worship you. Lord, I appreciate it. Lord, it's so beautiful. Lord, it means so much to me. He, he said in the scripture, when you believe on me, as the scriptures have said, then out of your innermost being, your spirit will flow rivers of living water. That's, that's all he wanted. He just wanted somebody to look at him and believe and then let the thanks flow not somebody perfect not somebody moral not somebody good not somebody trained and all together and pers- no he just he wanted somebody to just look at it and believe on it and then let the river flow just 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 look at him believe on it let the river flow you know that's all it takes to be a christian religious institutions make it so difficult you know what it takes to be a christian
1: look at jesus portrayed in the gospel look at what he did believe in it and then somehow some way open up your spirit open up your mouth lift up your hands and let the river flow that's all it takes to grow in god look at it believe it and then let the river flow and we got a lot of Christians with damned rivers we got a lot of Christians that got beavers in their spirit that have built dams on our flowing river, but we've come to a season. I felt it again this Sunday morning where the dam is breaking and the river is starting to flow. When you come to church, don't come with a damned river. When you come to church, let the river flow. When you pull up in the parking lot, don't come with a damned river. When you pull up, let the river flow. Take 40 seconds, lift up your hands, open up your mouth, and let the river flow. Let it flow, let it flow, let it flow. If He saved you, let it flow. If He forgave you, let it flow. If He healed you, let it flow. If He blessed you, let it flow. He's thirsty for it. He's thirsty for it. He's thirsty for it. Don't look at me. Raise your hands. Lift up your voice. And give God some water.
0: Point is. You can stay standing because I'm done. Point is. There are times in our lives where we have backslidden. There are times in our lives where we sin. The word sin in the scripture just means missing the mark of the intended target. There are times in our lives we fail. Not only God, there are times in our lives we fail ourselves. We don't even keep our own standard to ourselves, much less God's. And there are times where the soul gets so weary, so dried out, and the soul literally begins to thirst. Not for religion, not for man-made rules or organizations or somebody's stamp of approval. No, there's just times the soul begins to, to thirst for God thirst for God. Some of you, you're here this morning. You don't know everything that's been talked about. You don't, maybe you don't know anybody here, but you came because deep inside there's, there's just a thirst for God. But this text proves no matter how thirsty you've ever been for him, He's more thirsty for you. What manner of love is this that the, the greater God would be thirsty for the lesser me? What is it that you gave me an ability to provide for the only need you have, which is you can't worship yourself? What is it that, what do you get out of it that when I sing to you, it blesses your heart? That song that you sing, I don't know, just want to bless your heart, So all I want to do, I just want to stand in awe, yeah. yeah. pour my love on yeah. you, yeah, how much the cost, yeah, want to give it all to you, yeah. yeah, only you, yeah, what is that? That's so good. What do, you, what do you get out of my song? I don't understand it. Your ways are higher. What do you get out of? lifting my hands. My God. My God. I've done some good things. You see these hands? I've done some good things with my hands. But I got to tell you. Gotta be honest with you. I've done some bad things. Yes, But yes, these hands. Why would you tell us to lift up our hands in your sanctuary? What do you get out of it? Why would you, why would you tell us that you get that you get blessed? when we dance and I come to the conclusion I could spiritualize it and hype it up and preach and scream and all that it'd be good preaching but but the concept is unfathomable that there's something about your praise something about your tears Something about your song, something about your attention in a moment of worship. That is to God what water is to you when you're thirsty. So I just came by to tell you this morning, remind you this morning that you serve a thirsty God. Give him one more praise.
1: Come on, give him one more praise from your soul, with your faith, from your spirit. Somebody say, an o to the lord lift up a sound with your voice lift up your hands clap your hands walk around jump in space do something because you don't realize it in the natural but in the realm of the spirit somebody's quenching a thirsty god praise him for his acts praise him for his excellent greatness the sanctuary praise him in the symbols praise him in the dead praise the lord oh yes oh yes i say oh Oh, magnify the lord with me and let us exalt his name together oh you just gotta say, oh.
0: You Lord, you are worthy. I know you know this one, and no one can worship. I'll be your water boy. I'll be your water boy for all the things you've. Come on, Christian world, let me hear you sing. No one. Come on, congregation. Let's lift
1: it up together. Here's my worship, all of my worship. Receive my worship, all of my worship. And I will not be silent, no.
2: It up as long as
1: I, I will always come on just a little louder, say
0: Jesus, here's my All of my words. Receive my words. All of my Hands lifted all over the house. Repeat this prayer with me. Lord Jesus, I have looked upon you as the scriptures have said, and I believe. I believe I believe you died on the cross for my sins and I believe on the third day by the power of the Father you were raised to life today I repent of my sins I confess my faith in you with my mouth I say what I have believed in my heart that Jesus is Lord To the glory of God the Father, thank you for saving me. Thank you for delivering me. And now I ask you to fill me with the living water, to fill me with your Holy Spirit, and to lead me and guide me as I follow you every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Give
1: God a great praise all over the house.